The fact that the police officers were black for the family, it does resonate particularly a little bit more sadness. But I will tell you that they have no less anger and no less fight for justice because of the race of the police officers. It's Friday, January 27th, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. The city of Memphis says it will release video footage tonight showing police officers brutally beating Tyree Nichols during a traffic stop on January 7th. Nichols, a 29-year-old black man, died three days later from his injuries. Five officers involved in the stop, who are also black, were fired after an internal investigation and now face criminal charges, including second-degree murder. Memphis Police Chief C.J. Davis says other officers are still under investigation, and she called the behavior seen on the police video unconscionable. You're going to see acts that defy humanity. You're going to see um, a disregard for life, um, duty of care um, that we're all sworn to, and... um, a level of physical uh, interaction that is above and beyond what is required in law enforcement. And um, individuals watching will feel what the family felt. We're going to hear now from one of the family's lawyers, Antonio Romanucci. We spoke with him today before the video was released. So at the time of this recording, a little after noon Eastern, we haven't seen the footage. But as Romanucci told Deepa Fernandez, he has, and he watched it alongside Tyree Nichols' family. Well, the family's reaction to the video while the family was watching the video and for as long as they could was absolute appall, abhorrence, disgust. And and beyond that, it's even hard to even describe what they felt because there was so much emotion, so much anger because what they saw was their son literally being brutalized, savagely beaten for something that nobody could understand why. And the video doesn't really explain why he had to absorb this savagery. And n- nobody understands. But I think we're coming closer to answers on that. And I want to ask you about that in a moment. But, you know, we've heard that he called his mama's name towards the end, and that must have been so hard for her to watch and to hear. Well, I have to tell you, I don't know that mom was in the room when he was actually saying her name. She knows, she does know that he said that. And I can tell you personally that I heard him cry out for his mother several times, but his mom was not able to withstand hearing that. Uh, I mean, it must have been hard for everybody to watch, let alone if it's your own son. So when this video is released, the world will see exactly what you're talking about. And people will shout his name and Tyree Nichols' murder may lead to a new racial justice movement. Can you tell us about Tyree Nichols, the man, the father, the skateboarder? I can. Obviously, I did not know Tyree. Everything that I've been learning and discovering about him just points to a ray of sunshine, somebody who who had a bright future, somebody who cared, somebody whose co-workers adored him. His parents just 
loved him. He still lived at home. His mother cooked for him. He always wanted to know what his mother was cooking for him that night. He loved, loved to skateboard. That was his thing. He was a photographer. So what does that tell us? That he had an eye for capturing souls, whether of, of people or animals or just nature. Everything that we've heard about Tyree just points to someone who should still be here with us. Yeah. He was raised in California in the Sacramento area, and he moved to Memphis before the pandemic. And as you're describing, he was very kind. I've heard him described as really a free spirit. Is there anything in particular you think his parents, his family, want us to know about him as a person before we see this this video? Yes. I mean, I, I think what everybody needs to understand when they see this video, there's always going to be maybe some doubters who are going to say, what did he do to provoke this? And I can tell you that I have seen nothing that would ever, ever cause this sort of escalation of force. This was somebody who was begging on the camera. What did I do? What did I do? So I just want the public to keep in mind that this was somebody who was an innocent victim of a saturation and suppression unit who clearly had ulterior motives. And Tyree was caught up in this innocent web of deceit that the Scorpion unit runs in. What is the Scorpion unit? Why do they exist within the Memphis Police Department? Well, it's interesting. I mean, the Scorpion unit is supposed to exist to help the community in its policing, to make the community safer. Uh, the Scorpion unit was a team of four 10-man units. They're roving units that, that move about either in sectors or citywide. And their mission is to control crime. And really what that means is to find guns, find stolen cars. And what's the best way to do that? stop people on the street, um, stop cars, and they target unfairly you know, brown and black people, and then the cycle begins. And when Tyree ran from this Scorpion unit, basically it was a, how dare you? How can you do that to us? And they caught up to him, and they sure showed him that, hey, we are the Scorpion unit. You don't do that to mm. us, whether you're guilty or innocent or whatever the reason is. Yeah. So it took the Memphis Police Department two weeks after that brutal beating to actually fire the five officers. Yesterday, they were indicted on charges, including murder and kidnapping. Does this feel like a path to justice for the family? It actually does. You know, I, I, I've spent quite a bit of time with the family over the last, you know, 10 days, two weeks, and the family was willing to be patient with the state's attorney and the Department of Justice and the FBI, you know, regarding this particular issue because they wanted the most extreme, highest level charges that could be brought. They didn't want it to be rushed. And so I, I think it was worth the wait, so to speak, because I got to tell you, uh, I've been practicing in this area for a long time. I have never ever seen a sworn police officer wearing a uniform performing under the color of law being charged with kidnapping now let alone second degree murder 
Think of how significant that is a kidnapping charge for an on-duty police officer. We're speaking with Antonio Romanucci, who's an attorney representing the family of Tyree Nichols. I want to ask you, Antonio, because for some, it's it's hard, it's confusing to look at the perpetrators, the police officers in this case, of this brutality and see that all five are black men. How is the family processing this? They're sad. They're, they're very sad that they are seeing, you know, black police officers beating, uh, you know, a helpless, defenseless, you know, young black man. Now, having said that, in policing, it really doesn't matter what the race of the police officer is. It certainly does matter, however, what the race of the victim or, or the person who's being aggrieved is. And that's what we see as being more or less consistent here, that it's a young black man. The fact that the police officers were black and it's a black police on black young man, that is unfortunate and it is sad. It's sad any which way um, you look at this, but for the family, it does resonate particularly a little bit more sadness. But I will tell you that they have no less anger and no less fight for justice because of the race of the police officers. Never, ever acceptable or tolerable in any element of society. The city of Memphis is going to release the video to the public this evening. What's the family's message to the community right now? Well, I'm going to be seeing them very, very shortly. And I know that their message has not changed um, since we started this process. And they are asking the community to be peaceful. They don't want to see anybody hurt. Somebody's already been really hurt. He's he's dead and the family is is extremely hurt by what they've seen. And so we don't need Memphis to hurt anymore as a result of what's happened. So Antonio, I was reading that Tyree himself was a big supporter of the Black Lives Matter movement. And now he is going to be at the center of that. I wonder how his family feels about the fact that he might now come to represent a really big and urgent push for racial justice in the country. Well, no no mother, no father, no sibling ever wants one of their own family members to be remembered in that way. And whether for good or not, and hopefully it will be for a lot of good, Tyree now will become the new face of the racial justice movement and it's just such a an ugly paradox that as a, as a member of the Black Lives Matter movement, somebody who supported Black lives, who supported racial justice, that he now has to become the face of it. And essentially what that makes him is a martyr. He basically died for his own cause, a cause that he believed in. And when you do look at the fact that they were Black police officers, I don't think I'm too far from him being defined as a martyr. Antonio Romanucci, one of the lawyers for the family of Tyree Nichols. We'll follow this story on Here and Now and at NPR.org. After the break, the Biden administration is proposing changes to how the federal government asks people about their race and ethnicity. 
which could have major implications for the next census in 2030. Stick around. Every 10 years, the government takes account of everyone living in the country, logging geographical and demographic data that helps determine all sorts of things, including federal funding for social programs. And one critical but controversial aspect of that count, the census, is how to categorize race and ethnicity. Now the Biden administration is proposing changes that could transform how Latinos and people of Middle Eastern or North African descent are counted. NPR's Hansi Lo Wong told Jane Clayson what's on the table. Well, the two biggest proposals are new checkboxes on forms, one for Middle Eastern or North African, and another for Hispanic or Latino. And they would appear alongside boxes for other categories like American Indian or Alaska Native, Asian, Black, Pacific Islander, and White. And you would still be able to check off as many boxes as you identify with. But what would be new is that all those boxes would be under a combined question about a person's race or ethnicity. I see. So tell us exactly how those changes would make a difference. Uh, Maybe start with how Latinos are counted in statistics. Well, research by the Census Bureau shows asking about race or ethnicity in one combined question could allow many Latinos to report their identities more accurately because many Latinos have had a hard time answering questions about their race that do not include a response option for Hispanic or Latino. And that's because the federal government recognizes Latino as an ethnicity that can be of any race. Mm. And what about the potential effect of adding a new checkbox on forms for Middle Eastern or North African? Well, that kind of checkbox has been the goal for decades for many advocates for Arab Americans and other MENA groups. And advocates say their communities are basically invisible in national statistics. Because right now, the U.S. government officially categorizes people with origins in places like Lebanon, Iran, and Egypt as white And research has shown a lot of people with MENA origins in the U.S. do not see themselves as white. I see. So it sounds like there's a lot at stake here. Are there broader implications that could come with these potential changes? Well, we're talking about critical data that's used to determine political representation, enforce civil rights protections, guide health research. I can go on and on. And I should also note that these proposals are all part of potential revisions to federal data standards that have not been updated since 1997, more than a quarter century ago. And the way the country thinks about the social constructs that are race and ethnicity have certainly changed since then. So any approved changes here could really reshape the national conversation about race. Mm, Certainly could. How are census watchers reacting to these proposals, Hansi? Well, many advocates are relieved to see these proposals out because very similar proposals were made years ago based on the Census Bureau's research, and they appear to be on track to be put in place in time for the 2020 census, but former President Donald Trump's administration stalled that process. So the Biden administration is really reviving a years-long process, and the White House Office of Management and Budget, which is the final decider here on whether or not these proposals get approved, OMB is now asking for feedback from members of the public by mid-April, and a final decision is expected by summer 2024. Mm. Well, that's really interesting. Thanks for laying it out for us. NPR correspondent Hansi Luang. Thanks, Hansi. You're welcome, Jane. (laughs) 
All week, we've been following the aftermath of the mass shootings involving Asian Americans in the Los Angeles and San Francisco areas. After the break, Deepa speaks with the head of one group whose goal is to make it easier for Asian communities to take care of their mental health. The nonprofit Asian Mental Health Collective sprouted out of the pandemic with a goal to provide free therapy and address stigma in the community. They're now rallying counsellors around the country to provide culturally competent care to address trauma stemming from the recent deadly mass shootings in California. Both shooters were of Asian descent, as were many of the victims. Jeannie Chang is board president of the Asian Mental Health Collective. She's also a licensed marriage and family therapist with a clinical practice based in Raleigh, North Carolina. Jeannie, welcome to Here and Now. Thank you, Deepa, for having me. So, Jeannie, what are you hearing about how people in the API community, the Asian Pacific Islander community, are coping right now in the wake of the shootings in Half Moon Bay and Monterey Park? But, you know, Mm. they also have spent a few years enduring the anti-Asian hate and losing loved ones due to COVID. It's been very, very rough, to say the least. I want to say this is the heaviest I've seen the API community because we're talking about vicarious trauma. That is the trauma that just accumulates over time. Generally speaking, vicarious trauma hits first responders, doctors, clinicians, but for the general public to be hit by this because shooting after shooting, anti-Asian hate, it's a lot for us to take. So that is the sad thing. I'm seeing lots of folks in despair. That's the word I'm hearing a lot. And I myself Mm -hmm. as a clinician, I'm having a difficult time as well. Mm, You know, so in these situations, we seek help, right? We go talk to someone. But let's talk a little bit about stigma, which, of course, exists for many Americans in terms of mental health. But help us understand the stigma around mental health within the Asian American community specifically. Is there shame or guilt around seeking help? It is a very shame and guilt-based culture. It may sound bad to the general public that's non-Asian, but that's what the culture looks like. It runs deep, the stigma, because of that, where they feel like, you know, you should be a certain way, stoic, calm. It runs deep in Buddhism and Confucianism, where it's about peace and harmony. So, of course, when you have these difficult emotions, they don't look like they're peaceful and harmonious. So I think lots of folks feel like there's something wrong with you. The words of crazy and psycho in the Korean community runs pretty deep in the older population because they have had the least amount Mm. of psychoeducation. So it's very difficult where we are navigating stigma through all of this as well. Yeah. So then on top of the stigma, there's also this other barrier, which is about finding someone who might really understand you, you know, what's known as culturally competent therapy. Does that, you know, where do we find therapists who get us? Sure. I highly recommend, especially about an Asian American Pacific Islander community where stigma runs deep, that it does matter. The clinician you see understands your background, which is why the Asian Mental Health Collective came up with that therapist director. We're like, we have to come up with something to make it easily accessible, reachable for folks to seek therapy. So I think that's important. It doesn't mean you have to see an Asian therapist if you're an Asian, but of course you don't have to explain the nuances of the culture. You don't have to say, hey, the stigma runs deep. The, The therapists get it. But the hope is, as I'm seeing, because I mentor a lot of graduate students, that I'm seeing lots of more Asian therapists coming to light and being like, I want to be in this field. I've learned a lot from my parents and grandparents, and I want to change you know, the state of psychology as we have today. So that's the hope, that there's more Asian clinicians coming. 
Mm-hmm. That is really positive because there's a statistic that says only 5% of psychologists in the U.S. are Asian. So, so that's very hopeful. I want to just yes. talk to you about one of the other barriers, which is cost. Um, your collective mm-hmm. provides free therapy to people of Asian descent in the U.S. and Canada through a private partnership. Tell us how yes. that works. Sure. The Lotus Therapy Fund, we started it because, again, if we're going to try to get folks in therapy that may need it, it's already the least seek-helping community out there, then how do we make it accessible? Well, let's take out the finance part of it. So we get get lots of wonderful corporate sponsors that fund that, and we provide at least eight free therapy sessions from the get-go because we believe eight's a good number as a clinician to get that therapeutic alliance and get you know get your foot grounded in in what you need help in and so it's free again you have to apply so that we have tons of requests as you can imagine which is the ironic thing of all of this with the stigma we're seeing lots of folks still seek therapy I would say of all ages maybe not so much the elder population again they don't know that the stigma runs deep there but again seeing more folks wanting it is really also encouraging. So we're doing our best to keep that funded. That's called the Lotus Therapy mm, Program. That's a, that's a great program. I want to ask you because, yeah. you know, often violence against Asian Americans, when it makes national headlines, is an outpouring of support and solidarity. But then, you know, we all turn away and that support dries up after a period of time until, of course, the next tragedy happens. How do you keep people engaged in this kind of work, even when it's not top of the news cycle? I think it's important to continue to have these conversations, and that is a lot of my work. The more we talk about it, the more it's normalized, destigmatized. We'll keep talking about it, and I want to say at this point, it's so encouraging to see the AAPI community come together saying, hey, we need to elevate our voices, speak out, speak up, lean in. I've never seen this activism so much and engagement than before. And so out of a crisis comes an opportunity, and here's our opportunity to keep those conversations going. Jeannie Chang is board president of the Asian Mental Health Collective. She's also a licensed marriage and family therapist with a clinical practice based in Raleigh, North Carolina. Jeannie, thank you. Thank you so much, Deepa. Even mental health professionals are having a difficult time. Angela Wu is a counselor in the L.A. area, and as part of the Asian Mental Health Collective, she's been offering free counseling to some people in the community. She says there's been so much demand for that that her list is at capacity. But as she told producer Ashley Locke, she has her own struggles with mental health. Especially having this hit so close to home. I grew up in the San Gabriel Valley and Monterey Park was and still is where my friends and family live. It's where we frequent to find the best Asian food in LA. It's one of the few places where our families, especially the older generation, don't feel the pressure of assimilation. The safe haven where they can speak their own language and not feel like a perpetual foreigner has been taken away by tragedies such as these. It's already really difficult being, you know, an Asian person during the pandemic. So being an Asian American therapist, I have to learn how to hold my own trauma, the collective trauma, and that of my clients. And sometimes it means to put my own stuff on hold so I can show up as a first responder. But at the same time, I can't be too detached or desensitized from the suffering or I won't be able to empathize or relate. Now, it's easy to check out and trust me, there are times where I'm just trying to survive. But 
it's so important for me to find my own space to grieve, to talk to my friends and family, and even my therapist. And it's in these times where I fight extra hard for joy and fight for things that bring me life, especially in the midst of so much grief. That's counselor Angela Wu of the Asian Mental Health Collective. That's it for us today. This show comes to you from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Today's stories were produced by Sam Rafelson, Catherine Swartz, and Ashley Locke. Our editors are Todd Munt, Peter O'Dowd, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Patrick O'Connor and Max Liebman. Theme music by me, Max, and Mike Moschetto. Our digital producers are Grace Griffin and Allison Hagen. The executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. Take care of yourselves and each other. We'll be back Monday. Thank you.